Welcome to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. In this series, we ask experts and thought leaders from around the globe, how do we build a more sustainable and inclusive world in this decade and beyond? Today, we're delighted to be joined by Emma Hoskin, the UK Head of Sustainability at JLL, to talk about one of our biggest climate challenges, decarbonising our existing building stock. Within the major cities, 60% of emissions in those major cities come from buildings. So we have to do something about it. Buildings are definitely part of that, that decarbonisation solution. Our research is showing us more and more that there are price advantages, there's rental advantages. There's definitely much more of a narrative of a retrofit first approach. Not necessarily retrofit only, but definitely retrofit first. The three things I would change, I could probably put them all into policy, policy and policy. Net zero carbon new builds are all well and good, but given that 80% of the buildings that we see today will still be here in 2050, we urgently need to accelerate the process of decarbonising them. JLL is a real estate consultancy that's been a leader in this field, so we asked Emma to talk about some of the work it's been doing and how we replicate this on an even bigger scale. JLL, those who don't know, is a real estate advisory firm. So we advise our clients, whether they're occupier clients, on their um, tenant portfolios that they have, what, what buildings they're leasing, what their occupation strategy is, how they reduce carbon of those buildings and sustainability and impact more broadly. Or we also advise investors and developers on the portfolios that they own, what they should buy, what they should sell, uh, what, what they should develop. So can we start with the macro challenge? Why is it that buildings are such an important factor in the climate crisis? So buildings account, uh, buildings themselves account for about 25% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. Within the major cities, 60% of emissions in those major cities come from buildings. And in London, that's even higher, it's 78%. In Washington, it's 71%. In Paris, it's, it's 70%. So it's a really high portion of, of the emissions coming from, from the building stock. So we have to do something about it. We can't just sit back and kind of say... Okay, we can deal with it through energy infrastructure and we can deal with it through shipping and, and transport. No, no, buildings are definitely part of that, that decarbonisation solution. About 80% of the building stock at the moment is going to be here in 2050. And we know that there is a refurbishment rate for, um, for offices of about 1% a year, 1% to 2% a year. We know that really to get to our net zero carbon trajectory, that rate has to increase to about 3% per year. And that's just commercial stock. That's not even including your, your residential stock. And we're not just talking about climate mitigation here. So what are the impacts of climate change that we're already seeing? And how does that affect our buildings? So we're talking about heat stress. We're talking about drought. We're talking about flood risk. Those are kind of the, the most common ones. And we're also looking at kind of the impact on nature. How do buildings interact with nature and how is nature part of the solution? You can see the, the plant behind me is a very basic form of kind of how buildings can interact with nature. But the nature based solutions to climate change and climate adaptation are really important. So we think about um, putting plants on the outside of buildings and they do this particularly well over in Asia. Um, and then we've also got the social impact of buildings as well, which we mustn't forget. Buildings sit in communities, whether that's local communities or big shopping centres. So they have a massive impact in terms of how they can create good environments or conversely, how they can create poor environments. 
And how engaged are your clients typically on this stuff? Are they coming towards you with it or is it something that you're trying to convince them of the importance of? So the client base that we have, which is the, you know, the big institutional investors and those who are really kind of uh, thinking about these things yes we're well, absolutely this is this is part of the their thinking and you know you talk to some asset managers and say oh well actually sustainability is part of good asset management it's not an aside anymore it's absolutely core to what we do and it's the same you know if you're looking for finance to to um, get capex to upgrade a building you have to think about sustainability so they're definitely coming to us and I think what I've seen over the last 16 or so years that I've been at JLL is we've me- we've moved from having to explain the business case for action to our clients, to them understanding they need a strategy, us being there to help them develop that strategy and help them set their net zero carbon pathway aligned with the the Paris agreements or science-based targets or their net zero carbon own commitments. So aligning to that and then helping them say, okay, well, how do I deliver that strategy? What do I actually need to do? And how does that impact the way that I manage this building, the way way that I occupy this building, the way that I, I lease this building? There is also... I guess, a long tail of those asset owners who find this much more challenging because they've got less resource, because they've got assets which are um, potentially secondary assets in secondary locations. And, you know, my sort of go to is always what do we do with the industrial shed in the middle of Wales? But the economics of that asset look very, very different as well in terms of the return that you get on this asset. And so that's when you kind of get into the more challenging thinking is around you know how do you deal with assets like that the the larger shinier assets our research is showing us more and more that there are price advantages there's rental advantages if i just quote a few um statistics um at you so for briam certification of any certification we saw a capital value uplift of 20.6 percent in central london offices so we see this is a this is a small cohort very important cohort central london offices high value and then additional rent of 11.6 percent and then similarly with each step in the epc we saw a capital value uplift of 3.7 percent and we saw additional rental premium of 4.2 percent for each of those steps in epc rating so we know that the value is there and we know that the return for the investor will be there and we know from an occupier side that actually if you invest in in the asset and making it energy efficient then you're going to benefit from the occupational costs coming down and what are some of the solutions that you're typically talking to them about so Uh, Lots of the solutions we talk to our clients about, you can split these into two buckets sort of easily. (laughs) One of them is your operational emissions and one of them is your embodied carbon emissions. So from an operational emissions perspective, what we talk to most of our clients about is um, what targets do you have? What what, um, energy efficiency targets do you have and what net zero carbon targets do you have? And what's your trajectory to to get um, your stock to net zero carbon? And then you look at where where you need to make investments. If you've got a big portfolio of, let's say, 100 buildings, you can't invest in them all at once. And some of those solutions are technology solutions. So you can put BMS monitoring in, you can put um, systems in to monitor how the building's operating. And then you look at small upgrades to the building. What can you do whilst your tenants in situ? Or what can you do as a matter of course during the course of the year? That's an easy install. And then you're going to go, okay, well, where's where is there a big intervention point? I've got a lease break or I've got an opportunity to move my tenants around the building and, and kind of do lighting upgrades or do a new BMS install or new HVAC equipment or change the windows to double glazing. So those big ones that require good management and proper project delivery. 
So we can do those kind of interventions that move the building, really step change, move the building as well and, and, and bring those carbon emissions down. Then you can also look at where you're procuring your energy and what type of energy you're procuring. And that's definitely part of your net zero carbon journey as well. So moving from fossil fuel intensive purchasing of, of, of energy to much more um, renewable purchasing of energy. And then you've got your embodied carbon. Embodied carbon is the structure itself, the carbon that goes into making a building. And that is much more complicated to some degree if you're thinking about a new build. But actually, when it comes to an existing build, it's 80% of the stock that we're trying to retrofit, more or less, you know, the best thing you can do, keep the structure as it is and, and change the building around it. Now, that's got that's got lots of challenges to it as well, because how energy efficient, operationally energy efficient can you make a building in its existing structure? And actually thinking about the carbon over the whole life of the building, not just in its operational phase, not just in its embodied phase, um, but actually the whole life carbon, including disposal of the asset as well, or disposal of the equipment within the asset. That's what you need to be actually looking at and thinking, OK, well, how, how, do I, how do I think about this in its totality? And this creates a focus on whole life carbon, embodied carbon. Do you think that's likely to shift the balance, the emphasis away from new bills and more towards retrofitting? Um, I, yes, definitely. In that there's much more understanding now than there was a few years ago about the role of retrofit. That there's definitely much more of a narrative of, re of a retrofit first approach, not necessarily retrofit only but definitely retrofit first. Actually, sometimes some buildings just do not work. Um, you know, they, they may have been built many years ago. They might not work in terms of energy, but they also might not work in terms of the way that they sit in the community and how they interact with that community and the value that they bring socially. And that's the fine balance. There isn't, there isn't a defined, you must always retrofit. I mean, it is on a case-by-case -case basis per building, which is what makes it challenging for some of our clients who are looking at their whole portfolio and having to make decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. You're listening to Bridges 2030 Visions, a series about how we accelerate progress towards a more sustainable and inclusive world over the next decade. Presumably technology needs to be a big part of the solution going forward. It sounds like it's already proving useful, especially on the environmental side. Technology is absolutely part of the solution here, and I would absolutely expect that to continue as well, because, you know, people are, you know, interact with buildings in a way that's maybe inexplicable. <laughs> you know, what can you take away from the hands of the individuals who are um, engaging with those buildings? So what controls can you can you do centrally? And it's why having more and more sensors in buildings and things like that to actually kind of say, well, which, which space is occupied, which space is less occupied? And therefore, what do I do to the ventilation? What do I do to the air conditioning or the heat in those spaces? So def definitely technology is part of the solution, but I also think we need to think about, and this particularly comes to, to office environments, we have to think about the way we use those environments differently as well and put responsibility on ourselves to operate differently in those environments. So, you know, a, a, an easy example would be if we have a really hot summer, you want to air condition, you know, the building down to a temperature that makes sense. Do you need people dressed in suits and ties, you know, um, in, a, in a really hot environment? Notch it up a, a degree or two and save, save your, your, um, your carbon on the air conditioning, but change the workwear. So to what extent do you think occupiers are driving some of these trends? Are they pushing asset owners into some of these decisions? 
So occupiers are definitely driving asset owners in terms of what their expectations are. And we've seen a massive shift in occupier demand for net zero space uh, over the last few years. Now, where it differs is that a um, service occupier, law firm, bank, etc., most of their footprint is their buildings. And so they will really drive hard reducing emissions through their buildings. If you talk to a retailer, most of their footprint is their supply chain, their, their value chain. And so their real estate footprint is a tiny, tiny portion of their building. So it then comes to which type of tenant that you have as to how hard they're driving their real estate. But at the moment, what we're seeing is that the um, demand from the occupiers in terms of their commitments to net zero carbon far outstrips the supply of net zero carbon space. It's more than double the, de the demand to the supply that we have in the chain um, within London. And it's about the same in Paris as well. So we know that there's a supply gap there in terms of that demand for space and the supply to meet it, which basically means, if you follow that one through, that there should be, and certainly we're seeing this, a rental premium, and there should be a capital value premium for net zero carbon or highly sustainable office space. And that's what we're seeing coming through in the market at the moment, and also reduced void rates in the regional markets as well. Where we probably have less evidence, and I uh, would imagine there's less of a material impact at the moment that I've just um, than those have just described is some of the secondary markets because you've probably in those markets got some tenants who are less less bothered at the moment about the space that they occupy and therefore the market demand isn't quite there. But we're expecting EPCs to change to to a minimum of EPCB by 2030, which will materially impact the rental market. And that will have an impact, obviously, across the whole of the UK. So let's talk about how we fund all of this stuff. Is there financing available to, to pay for these improvements? So I think the, the lending market, the banks, are much more attuned to the risk as well as the opportunity of, of lending to projects and schemes and, and companies that don't have sustainability on their agenda. They see that as a normal way of assessing the risk of, an, of, of, of a loan now. The finance is there, but I think the, the banks themselves need to make sure that they've got the right criteria in place to be able to measure what they believe to be sustainability when it comes to real estate. And what I mean there is that the What's complicated is what metrics are you looking for when you're giving out a loan? So I think what we find is lots of the frameworks that are set up in many regards to deal with the investment mar market broadly, when it comes to trying to adapt those to deal with real estate, it's a bit more challenging. There isn't, there isn't consistency across the market when it comes to giving out um, loans for sustainability improvements. I think the other, the other thing that we're seeing is lots of um, banks are looking at their back books, because I think that's where a lot of the risk lies, those loans that were given out, you know, many, many years ago, and you've got lots of analysis that can be done um, in relation to those loans that are already out there and have been there for many, many years as to how, how big that risk is and what is the risk on value if they, those buildings can't respond to climate change adaptation. So let's say you had a magic wand and you could instantly change three things that would transform this market for the better over the next few years. What would those three things be? The three things I would change, I could probably put them all into policy, policy and policy. You've got to have a clear trajectory and you've got to have the right levers in place and the right incentives in place to get people there so that the market can respond, so that the, 
supply chains there and can and, and can deliver what the market um, needs and is demanding. And at the moment, we are shy of that um, in the UK. And it's quite interesting seeing the um, impacts of the American IRA on the UK decarbonisation R&D and innovation groups, because I think we're going to see quite a lot of them going over to America because they've got that certainty on what the trajectory looks like for them in terms of some of those tax incentives, which we just don't have here. I think the second one, which we sort of touched on a bit, is is better landlord-tenant collaboration, making sure that tenants understand what landlords want and landlords understand what tenants want and working out those win-win areas. Green leases are a good mechanism to do that. And there's been a lot of work over the last um, year or so in getting better green lease clauses so that we can actually help to drive um, some of that conversation. And then my, my third thing would be we are wholly focused on net zero carbon and decarbonizing in its purest sense at the moment. But actually, if you look left and you look right, you'll see climate adaptation and you'll see climate risk and you'll see protecting nature and you'll see some of the social impacts that we we talked about as well. And I think, you know, the thing I want to, to make sure that we do is not have such a such a single complicated agenda item as it is without looking left and right and saying, okay, what are some of the other risks and opportunities that I should be pulling into this? Because they're all part of the same solution. And just lastly, I guess, given the scale of the task that faces us in this area, how optimistic are you that we can achieve the change that we need at the speed that we need it to happen? Uh, It's my job to be optimistic, um, but also realistic. The realism is the pace at which we know we need to move to to align with the Paris trajectory. It, it is going to be challenging to keep up with that pace. But I have to be pessimistic. I have to be optimistic. Not pessimistic. I have to be optimistic because we have to get there because the impacts of not getting there are so enormous. Yes, we will get there because we have to, and we will make sure that we do transition. And we know we can do it. We've seen the response you know, to, to COVID as an example, the way that everyone actually um, did respond to that and change ways of working and adaptation. Let's take some of that thinking, let's take some of that pace and apply it to this crisis, which will continue to hit us more and more in much more obvious ways um, over the next few years. You've been listening to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, why not like, subscribe, share, download extra episodes, or even leave us a nice five-star review somewhere. Thanks for joining us.